0: Welcome to Sustain What? A series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the communication initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask sustain what, how, and for whom. This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp sustainwhatlive live. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometimes songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good
1: morning, uh, or wherever you are, good day. This is Andy Revkin. I run a new initiative at Columbia University's Earth Institute on communication and sustainability. And I would say communication for sustainability, but I'm trying to understand the upsides and downsides of how we um, can make progress in a world uh, where we're sort of suffused in so much stuff, some of which is information, some of which is actionable, but much of which is designed to distract us or confuse us actually. And so it's up to uh, purveyors of information and audiences to figure out better pathways forward. And this conversation, this sustain what effort was launched. and uh, I, I started this mid-March um, as an experiment centered on COVID-19 when all of us are forced, whether we want to or not, to do a lot more of our communication online. Um, and I think a lot of that's going to actually persist and grow. So this isn't like a patch, a temporary patch, and then we all go back to our long commutes and the like. I think there's, a, there's some good changes going forward. But today's, today's discussion, I'm really... Um, Honored to have a couple of guests who have already been on this show. I will call it a show, I guess, um, webcast. Uh, Alice Hill, who was a long time, uh, has had a career in national security, um, including the National Security Council. Very strong focus on climate adaptation, climate resilience, disaster resilience. Um, But also earlier than that on biodefense and uh, issues directly related to what we're experiencing right now with the pandemic. And also we have Rod Schoonover, a background in physics and uh, other sciences, who had been for a decade in the national intelligence apparatus, um, working to illuminate for decision makers what is happening in the world, what could pose big risks, and where do we go. Um, and Rod had a fairly prominent moment a year ago. Was it just a year ago or is it already like two years? It's less than a year. Yeah. okay it, will, it,
2: it feels <laughs> is doing weird things. Uh, so, it is like uh i don't know uh, about eight months
1: yeah there was uh, some testimony uh, before a uh, congressional committee that was pending and he was restricted in the way he would be able to present that testimony and and decided like uh that great scene and Albert Finney and the movie network was just. I'm sick and tired. I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, that, that meme has come up lately uh, quite a bit. Um, so Rod is uh, it, it remains in uh, sort of a consulting role in uh, at this interface between risk and and progress, and it's a, a challenge as we've seen right now uh, in in spades. Uh, so we're we're going to focus on what I, I'm calling the page twenty one effect, which is a term I that grew out of something Rod said on this, uh, this webcast uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how the national security apparatus actually has nailed pandemic risk. And even uh, ABC this week reported that the uh, medical intelligence pandemic tracking unit at the Pentagon had nailed that something really weird was going on in Wuhan. Yet we're stuck with this often in the in the decision process getting up toward a president. You end up with that competing with all the other things on the agenda. And and Rod, as Rod said, uh in 2019 or 18 uh, threatened 19. statement. You know, it's kind of like on page 21. And that that's that's this question: can we do better at action actualizing at, at getting presented with information like this in a way that actually Gets us to torque. How, how many hospital beds is enough? You know, where are the respirators, are, are ventilators? Are they are they in good sh- shape? You know, can that actually can change the way government and the rest of us can function and deal with these big risks? So let's start with uh, Rod. Yeah. On on this question, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, let me just um, scroll here. This is the way for people watching uh, online that can uh, see a little bit the words here. You know, you've said uh, a week or so ago that you described this effect. So could you go with that again? You know, what is the phenomenon, like as you're working on a report, as you see it mm-hmm. work its way up the chain, uh, what is it that sometimes feels frustrating?
2: Well, you know, it's uh, I was part of the, uh, and by the way, thanks for having me, um, uh, but I was part of the intelligence community that was tasked with looking at long range risk, long range analysis. And you know the the entire U.S. government is lar- including the intelligence community, uh, is largely in a reactive uh, crisis management mode. Um, and, you know, I think it was it was uh, Stephen Hadley uh, back in the Bush administration who said something to the effect that if all you do is manage crises, all you're going to get is more crises. Because you're not ever planning or putting into place policies uh, to shape the future, and um, and so you know things like climate change, things like uh, large scale um, outages of critical infrastructure, things like pandemics, who are low probability for a given slice of time, but over enough time are reached. Quite high probabilities. They, uh, I don't think we in the in the uh, in the national security community or generally the policy community don't quite have the strategic versus tactic uh, tactical operations calibrated quite correctly.
1: And what? Let's is there a case study, or I'm trying to think of a way to crystallize that difference between or, or why it gets muddled.
2: Well, I mean, it's um, basically, you know, much of our history in the, uh, you know, just given 10, 12 years, we have been um, surprised. We've encountered strategic surprise, whether it's 9-11, whether it's 2008 financial crisis, whether it's Russia invasion of Crimea, you know, the active measures of 2016, uh, Arab Spring, this pandemic. Um, you know these. Although I put the pandemic in a slightly different category, since we knew something like this would eventually come, we just didn't know when and how um, extreme. Uh, but basically, it's you know it's a problem. That's a big problem in how to transform strategic foresight and anticipation and in, into effective policy. And so that that that. Worldwide Threat Assessment that I uh, mentioned last time in 2019, uh, it's got a mix of things that are very short-term risks, and a little bit of what you might be, uh, might characterize as strategic risk or long-term risk. Um, And you know, it's it's, some of this is institutional that's been around for uh, decades and some of it are are uh, maybe new developments. So
1: yeah, and Alice um, you, from your perspective too, could you just go back you said you were uh, you focused on biodefense stuff at a certain point. Could you maybe think about that in this context too?
3: Sure, uh, listening to this uh, any administration is challenged by the fact that uh, the urgent um, will uh, often overtake the important. So what happens, and I saw this when I was at the Department of Homeland Security as well as at the White House, is that the crisis of the day uh, tended to consume a great deal of energy, and it was hard to step back to do the type of policy planning that would better prepare the nation for risks like a pandemic that can bring the nation to its knees um, so it is incumbent upon leadership to set that
2: I'm still here, Andy. I think Alice. Yeah, Alice. uh, We.
1: uh, You froze there. Let me see if she. um, Maybe she can come back in, and uh, we. You know, this is another issue. Five G would be a good thing. (laughs) Uh, She'll hopefully come back in. Hold on. Um, Let me just scoot her out. Okay. So, uh, well, that that was. was, She made a very. mm -hmm. Oh, hold on. Here she's back. I think.
2: Yeah.
1: What? Maybe not.
2: Well, let me just pick up on what she's saying, Yeah, the earth, it, you know, the it's a restatement of what I'm saying. That right. There okay. she is.
3: <laughs> well, let me just say, we had a task force that looked at this, and it's uh, challenging for the government because there's so many agencies that have responsibility for pandemics, for example. Uh, and coordinating all of that, uh, there's the question of who's in charge? So for the Department of Homeland Security, it wasn't clear what we were in charge of. There were certain things coordinating with state and locals, which we now know is so important in the case of fighting a pandemic. That was within uh, DHS's lane. But it's difficult without money uh, contributed to exercises, to scenario planning, and then actually deployment of resources, for example, forward uh, positioning of stockpiles, for the nation truly to get prepared, and that requires Congress and others being willing to invest in long-term preparedness. We historically have not seen that.
1: Um, I, I just wanted you to back up to the, the. I think we you were frozen for a little while there, so so you could could you just restate the case you were how you were involved through it was through it was Homeland Security.
3: Sure, uh, Secretary Napolitano asked me to head a biological task force looking at bio threats to the nation that would include a pandemic. It also included, for example, terrorist attacks using agents such as aerosolized anthrax. So we had an opportunity to look at all of our procedures within the department, and and that department really uh, somewhat uniquely in the United States, it's got the Homeland Security focus, but Homeland Security involves preparing with state and local and tribal leaders. Uh, So we were looking at how do we deploy, for example, uh, personal, Uh, protective equipment in advance, how do we get prophylactic drugs out to the American citizens should we have a biological attack, Uh, trying to solve the many logistic problems involved. And I will credit Secretary Napolitano. She recognized that bio threats, H1N1, occurred very early in the Obama administration. She recognized this would be a long-term vulnerability for the United States, and she asked that a task force be set up, asked me to lead it. Uh, to make sure that we were coordinating within the department and then with all the other agencies as well as to how to be prepared.
1: And how much of this, um, what would be a great case study of a, a um, where people gamed out a situation and we got it right? And I, not just not just in the United States, for example, I, I don't know if there's a situation that comes to mind where you've seen the the, the process work well. Uh, I, I don't know, Rod um, or,
2: or well, Alice. Well, I can uh, give an example, but uh, you know, so in, uh, in 2018, when I was still at the National Intelligence Council and um, for a while I was double-headed as the uh, Environment and Natural Resources Director and also the Global Health uh, Advisor. And we, and this is, I think it was 2018 where we had an analytic simulation of an emergent pandemic in, uh, in an era of disinformation. That was basically the theme. How does so- something like a, a re-emergent or a newly emergent disease evolve as we're being hit with all kinds of disinformation? And so we did that, it was an unclassified or uh, for uh, official use only uh, analytic simulation with multiple agencies involved. Uh, and it was chaos, it was, it was absolute, uh, you know, um, just one mistake made after another of, from yeah. agencies. And, and so, you know, that doesn't, uh, try to game out different policy responses, uh, really to the degree that they needed to, uh, you know, the, this an- analytic simulation, um, called a, again, a war game by others. Uh, lasted a couple of days, and so um, you know. And it, by the way, it's just another uh, example of how elements of the Trump administration were um, part. They participated in this analytic simulation, um, but but you know that's one of the really effective ways to do strategic planning is to do a stress test. In simulation environments, not in real-time environments. Right.
3: Right. I have to agree with that. I think scenario-based planning um, and actually um, doing the exercise uh, with deployment of assets to see what the vulnerabilities that costs a lot of money, but right. it does reveal uh, where we have cracks. And then, of course, you need to have the political will to close the cracks once they've been identified and move yeah. forward. And then then you have to do it all over again uh, right. and see what else uh, may be amiss. Uh, and that takes a discipline that may not be present when you have changes of political administrations.
1: Yeah, so that, that lack of continuity, because everyone seems to want to jettison whatever the legacy of the last one was. Uh, you do see so, sometimes, like in climate policy, I've seen the Bush era um, major economies forum became under Obama. Mm-hmm a forgot, major emitters forum or something, but right. so, so there can be continuity. And and to me, that that, that that was a perfect example of something that was extra treaty. It was outside the treaty process, but it was going to help enable the treaty. So uh, so you can see that continuity, but as you say, I think with national security stuff, I think it's kind of harder. I don't know. Does the Pentagon do this internally sufficiently? and They must, if anyone does this right, it would be within the Pentagon.
3: Uh, The Department of Defense uh, does do uh, full-on exercises. Um, They have, I I don't even want to guesstimate how much uh, they invest in planning and preparedness, uh, but a great deal. So I would think that all agencies could look to them as a template uh, for what needs to be done. They're testing their plans, uh, creating plans and testing them. I think there's generally a recognition. uh, It was Eisenhower who said, Plans during war, plans are useless, but planning is essential. And that uh-huh. really is what uh, is missing, I believe, on a systematic basics in the Homeland Security space. Right. FEMA uh, tries to do that, uh, but it's already stretched with emergency response. So to be able to right. focus also on the importance of planning is a challenge for them. They try, but they don't have the resources to match the Department of Defense. Uh, And then they have the difficult job. Department of Defense plans with itself. Uh, Department of Homeland Security has to plan with uh, 50 states and six territories and uh, all the lower level governments beyond that, the municipal and tribal and uh, all those uh, entities. It's really complex.
1: Well, complex. and, And I guess when you run that scenario, you realize you have to, become comfortable with the fact that the response will be variegated. In other words, part of the strate- strategy at the top must, if you really run that simulation, must essentially embrace the reality that the United States is 50 states with all these different capacities. And even within states, you get like what happened in Florida with different counties, <laughs> getting people off the beaches and other, others letting the beach parties continue. So, so um, I guess that... Still, comes back to the value of running the exercise, and then, but I guess it also gets back to the reality that the United States is always going to be complicated and tough and and variegated. And one thing that that leads me to is this idea of what can you build in the capacity, the distributed way, in communities, so that they have their own connectedness. They can they know where to get information from. They know how to be adaptive. How how important is that? Um, they know. When you hear the word pandemic, that it means that social distancing makes sense. So, you know, you're kind of like normalizing that we're going to get it wrong. Uh,
3: I think we could do a lot better job. I mean, over the last decade or so, we have starved public health. So, Uh, I was not a public health expert uh, or familiar with it when I joined uh, the Department of Homeland Security. I've been a former judge though. So I was used to uh, being handed problems that I wasn't the expert in, but had to understand what were the vulnerabilities. And one thing that was very clear is that our state and local public health system is weak and we have weakened it in recent years and that is now showing. Uh, We just haven't invested. So I think if you have leadership at the federal government level, uh, supporting state and locals financially, but also with research, best practices, information, uh, sample messaging, you can have a much stronger response than we had here. Uh, we just simply didn't have that fully in place to support in the way that I think a federal system could work the best. Same is true in climate change. We are leaving uh, communities up to their own devices to figure out essentially reinvent the wheel uh, and uh, hoping for the best. But we certainly have a lot of knowledge that could be shared to make this a lot easier on people and uh, have better results in my opinion.
2: And I would add, I mean, those are uh, really outstanding comments um, by Alice. Um, I I would also just reassert that um, surprise is inevitable and, you know, it becomes imperative on federal governments and, and state governments to do everything possible to incorporate surprise into their planning process. Right. And, um, you know, the, the, this goes back to this um, comment that, that we both had before is that you know, U.S. decision-making is almost entirely reactive yeah. and it does very little to try to shape the future that we want. We um, also wanna put out there that uh, pandemic preparedness, um, pandemics and climate change and some other issues are um, examples of a term that I've heard recently called, not black swans, but black elephants. Uh, right. I
3: actually right. <laughs> turned
1: that into a meme a couple of years ago.
2: Yeah. So they're, they're so uh, damn obvious. <laughs> well, yeah, there, it's a combination of a black swan event and the elephant in the room mm-hmm. and, you know, problems that everyone, uh, knows about, but no one wants to deal with. And, uh, and basically gambling that it's not gonna, you know, a black elephant isn't going to occur on someone's watch. Um, mm-hmm. And you know this 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 tendency for um, for policymakers, I would say Alice is a, a great exception to this rule, uh, but to avoid the future uh, is very very persistent and not new. And and so you know we need to build in processes and structures to offset this tendency to avoid the future. And, you know, the US has lost quite a bit of its capability for strategic planning. And and, and Alice mentioned uh, Eisenhower uh, a little bit ago. I think we would do a lot of good to look back to the Eisenhower administration's planning board that they had that really uh, beefed up strategic planning uh, inside the US government, It is it has deteriorated Uh, significantly in the last uh, couple decades.
1: There was a question that came in that's worth posting here. Um, Sorry, it's temporarily blocking your face, uh, Alice. Uh, Scott Carlson says, from my story in 2011 following the recession, for those viewers interested, Patrick Doherty, a national security expert at the New America Foundation, his colleagues believe that the nation needs grand strategy once again to meet a new global challenge we think that the core global challenge is global unsustainability, he says, a convergence of major problems, including a persistent middle class recession, ecological systems in decline, the vast population of the world's poorest, et cetera. Um, that's also, we had a conversation here with um, um, Mickleby, Puck Mickleby, who was one of the authors for the Joint Chiefs, who did this uh, Mr. Y manifesto that made yeah. this same point that a new narrative. Uh, in, in which as you were saying the complexity of our global system now guarantees surprises um which guarantees to me the the need for adaptive capacity for agility for uh, and puck said in the marines he uh, he said that you're when you were given an order you were also given a purpose meaning it wasn't just go shoot the guy it was <laughs> there was some context which i thought was interesting i you know i have a, a, a nephew who's in the marines but um, i did not serve um, and that struck me as interesting because that that gives permission for for agility for for um innovation for um so it's not just do the thing and i i, I guess that feels to me like part of what would be a, a good policy or a trait to to nurture in this environment alice you have thoughts?
3: Well, I think that historically we've seen nations have responded with great change after a calamity. Um, Whether it's a natural hazard or a pandemic, I'm sure there'll be uh, far greater preparedness, uh, at least in the coming decades, for biological threats as a result of uh, this most recent challenge. I think that What's difficult is that in my experience in government there, it's still, um, incremental except for that area that ha- needs to be fixed. And so we need clearly right. to fix the problem that allowed the country to be so vulnerable to a pandemic, uh, but, and not have in place the proper protective equipment and uh, understanding of what measures needed to be done quickly as well as diagnostics. But uh, I fear that uh, just the nature of how business is done to get to a grand strategy uh, doesn't feel, based on my experience in working in government, and I've spent almost all my career, uh, likely to occur. It's uh, In most areas, uh, progress is made incrementally. uh, And even with a pandemic, to alert us to how serious this is, uh, I anticipate that we may not make much progress, certainly in cutting emissions uh, going forward with climate change. And we may also be very challenged in building resilience to the impacts that are already coming. So I love the idea of a grand strategy, but um, it seems a big stretch from my life experience. I hope I'm wrong.
0: Well,
1: and at the the same time though, I I guess the question is, if, if this doesn't spur it, what will you know um Deborah Brosnan who was on here recently in 2015 co-authored uh for the European Science Foundation I think that's it European science yeah um a big report on geohazards and the need for much more international integration coordination planning so you have the capacity when we do identify an asteroid that is going to strike the Indian Mm -hmm. Ocean and create a tsunami that makes the 2004 tsunami look like a cakewalk. We have some sense of how to handle that, and it could be even years. It could be a two-year advance notice given astronomy, or, or you know, pick your threat. Uh, you know, Tambora scale eruption. Uh, they they cited that the Iceland volcano that erupted uh, less than a decade ago was a multi, a huge jolt to uh, economics because of the shutdown of flights and stuff. Um, and and yet there too you have this sense of yeah it's all good uh, and here we are with a pandemic where China wasn't actually being very clear uh, in the early stages with some information that it could have shared that Laurie Garrett reported on who's on the show as well so okay so backing up and saying like so as you just said Alice you don't get have a lot of confidence we can think and act grandly what's the next best thing.
3: Uh, incrementalism, yeah, so. uh, trying to push as many policies as we can, uh, to get the best results we can. And I think that takes individual leaders, yeah. uh, like Rod and others in their departments to, um, step forward and say, we got to look at this, um, it just would, uh, I think that's the only choice we have, and there's so much that can be done, uh, on a, um, Really, across the board in any community, to better prepare, we know that social capital is key. So we can start there.
1: Yeah, I, I want to show a, a visual okay. here. And Rod, then you. In 2009, I spent time in Istanbul doing a story for the New York Times on the next great earthquake there. You know, it's not a question of if; it's when. It's soon. 1999, they had the the sort of the precursor quake. And I was so fascinated. I was in a poor neighborhood uh, to, with a Swiss nonprofit group that had been training community gr- um, teams to be ready to respond to when this quake happens. They're literally like 100 different teams across Istanbul, which essentially will become a, 100 tiny cities instead of being a mega city when the quake hits, because there won't be firefighting and all that. So, and the team that I met with had someone had mentioned that. They're waiting for the quake, but they had responded to a terrorist bombing. There was a bomb that took down a building, and they they had the capacity to respond. <laughs> like, that struck me as really interesting. And I've seen, uh, I just, on Monday this week, I was uh, talking here with a team of c- citizens in Bhopal who had formed around a co- to be a coalition to reduce plastic trash in Bhopal. And now they're cooking and distributing food. And the same thing with using WhatsApp as the, uh, indicator of where the food need is which slum and uh, this even came up with occupy occupy wall street became occupy sandy
2: mm-hmm.
1: so what systems are there systems or is there merit in just boosting the capacity for those kinds of adaptive qualities to uh, expand and the like is that part of what we can think about and i didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought rod so if you want to just go back to what you were going well, to say well let me let me just
2: I mean, because I think Alice can talk to resilience and adaptive capacity quite well. And, uh, there are many gains that uh, that happen when you build resilience. It, if you do it right, uh, it's multipurpose. and so that that seems to me to be exactly right. But one of the things I wanted to I want to make a plug for Grand Strategy because yeah. I think I think uh, Alice is quite correct that. Um, that day-to-day, month-to-month, it is incremental. Uh, But change is more than just speed, it's also direction. And so uh, you need, well, velocity. Someone may challenge my physics degree if I don't get that (laughs) right. Um, but, But basically you need to change, but you need to also go in the right direction. And I think that there needs to be people in every agency, and also in the in the uh, nucleus of the White House, who and and, and pretty well staffed, uh, who think and design uh, a grand strategy. And I, I think one of the things that the Trump administration did right uh, in the in the first year, and I saw these people work. Uh, I worked with them for you know almost a year. Is that they went to work on a national uh, national security strategy from the beginning, and held many meetings trying to formulate what kind of national uh, security strategy uh, this administration was going to pursue. Uh, unfortunately, you know we went through four different national security advisors, so that kind of sabotages yeah. uh, the continuity. But at least that's something that, you know, that's some that's some strategic thinking and shaping the future that I think uh, the next administration would be very wise to emulate. Why Why
1: wasn't that, was that also underway earlier or was this a, a new, what was it about government and that aspects of government that made that a new and novel thing in the, that, the early it, days there?
2: So, um, so my, you know, the I've only served under two administrations, so uh, my my statistics are not great here. But um, what was new is that they went to work o- work on it right away, and it was issued. Uh, so the staff came in 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 uh, January, and it was overseen by a very highly um, skilled. Uh, deputy national security advisor, and then issued in in October, which is really fast comparative, comparatively to other administrations. So, and it was, uh, and it was, um, there was a lot of deep thinking involved in that national National security strategy. I mean, whether, I mean, I, I would quibble with the contents, uh, mm-hmm. but it was a serious endeavor um, But, you know, as I said, it's fairly detached from what the administration's actions have been. But that exercise, I think, is something to emulate in the future.
1: So, quickly before. Yeah, yeah, Alice, yeah, yeah.
3: Jump in on the national security strategy. I agree. Uh, The Trump administration came out very quickly. Um, But there was one very important omission, which has come at a great cost to the United States. That document right. essentially does not talk about climate change.
2: That's right. Absolutely. So
3: uh, th- that was a signal there is no leadership in this space. We're not going to do a thing about it. Um, and gave cover to people who didn't want to do anything about it because it wasn't even in there.
2: That's right. Uh, so that's, I think that's, that's exactly one of right. the
3: dangers of global strategies. Um, it They can be manipulated to... Uh, cost uh, at a great cost to the nation because, of course, now we're not doing anything on climate change, we're rolling back everything, which uh, will come to haunt us in future years. Um, so, I think, Andy, your point I with incrementalism, you get all hazards. So, you got to have seismic, you got to have uh, bio threats, climate, every terrorism, uh, nuclear but you also need a whole of community because ultimately these responses yeah. will require uh, leaders at all levels to be involved uh, in the long-term.
1: Yeah, that's
3: a like, well, and let's circle back to
1: that question about leaving out climate change. Um, <laughs> if if the, I'd have to look back at what emerged, but if it, it did talk about energy security and vulnerability, for example, and just didn't talk about the Paris Agreement. Would that be enough to fight it? I'm thinking about this the way this is different than how the legislature works, you know, Congress. But it's like, can you build enough of a head of steam on something internally knowing that it's imperfect or even deeply flawed, but it's going in the right direction? Or I don't know how this works out, Again, most of my brain and thinking about these things, thinking about government is about legislation and how Congress is always Mm -hmm. horse trading and how the, uh, like Obama's climate bill got rejected in part because it didn't have nuclear in it and some of the enviros, they, no, there was uh, McCain when they added nuclear to um, a climate bill and, and the climate community kind of pulled back from supporting it because they didn't want nuclear. Yeah, I don't know, within these processes, strategy, a go- new direction for government and thinking about big risks, is it okay to, to know that some of it will be torqued or, or, or not? I don't know.
3: Well, I think with the national security strategy, uh, President Obama had been very forward-leaning uh, in his strategy, stating that uh, climate change was public health risk, uh, risk to our national security and economic risk. And then you have a new administration coming in, really just not mentioning it. Um, So, uh, I think it's vulnerable. Perhaps if we had it in legislation, it'd be less vulnerable, Uh, but getting agreement through our Congress as to what that should encompass um, seems very difficult, at least right now, given our polarization.
2: Yeah. And and let me mention that, you know, I, as an advocate of, of formulating and thinking about a grand strategy, it's, of course, not sufficient on its own it, it you uh it as alice correctly says it's once you write it it's static and uh gives gives cover uh to yeah. uh, other other elements but if you do it right and again you know it's ultimately good leadership at the top matters
3: yeah
2: uh matters and, and it's incredibly important but you also have to have some element within the government Again, uh, you know, uh, my time in government has been in the executive branch, uh, but you need an element that is strategic in focus, but also working uh, on issues going forward. So what does this policy mean five, 10, 20 years from now? What does this operation in North Africa mean you know, 10 years from now, right? right. So it's, none of that can be written down in a grand strategy but you still have to build that adaptive capacity, you know, in a, in a policy uh, way inside of the government and, and states can do this as well. There was
1: a question that came in a minute ago, circling back to scenarios and working out how, well, gaming things out and coming to conclusions Knowing how flawed we are at some of these timescales and uncertainty questions. And it's about AI. Uh, Owen Reese asks, uh, ask about AI, <laughs> can it help? In other words, like Arizona State has this decision theater. Um, I've talked a lot with Michael Crow about that over the years. Um, where where those systems we can start to understand how the human system, not just our behavioral, you know, our perception system, but how human systems, decision systems, work or don't work. Is there a kind of a dashboard that can be created that has a little yellow light glowing when an issue like pandemic risk has certain characteristics that we know we're going to get wrong without a a nudge from some external intelligence? Does that make sense at all? You know what I'm saying? Like Dan Kahneman, I'll just give you an example. Dan Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize for his behavioral science on risk misperception and and wrote that great book Thinking Fast and Slow on last Saturday he was on the New Yorker radio R being interviewed and he said he got this totally wrong in his own head he <laughs> said you know he knows more about exponential growth and risk than, and how it is perceived than anyone and he said he was still like on the borderline of, of flying to France like 4 weeks ago <laughs> and right. and and the reason he didn't go didn't wasn't rational it was like some you know toss of the dice kind of thing related to cost, or whatever. Can do we need help? Like te- is it, can technology
2: help us here? Well, well, absolutely. And so, and just, there, there are several classes of surprises, right? There's the, there's the tactical type of surprise that the military thinks about. And there's the system shocks that we're going through right now. And then there are like the tectonic type shifts of like the rise of China, that uh, that takes place over you know a longer period, and in that middle ca- category, I think is where you know machine learning, uh, near AI capabilities can really be helpful in seeing patterns before our human brain can see them, and so the the intelligence community spends quite a bit of time and quite a bit of resources in strategic foresight, Uh, for example, one element of this is trying to uh, see emergent uh, technologies and emergent uh, subfields of science, even before the practitioners know that this is a community building and they, you know, they uh, scan the, the gray literature and the open literature and pick up these trends using using machine learning, using AI. And that's just one example, but um, in terms of strategic foresight, I think it's going to be incredibly important going forward, uh, especially as the algorithms become more sophisticated.
1: Yeah, it feels, and even I I could think of um, on that more granular scale, how we've heard recently how um, ventilators that were theoretically in stockpiles hadn't been tested in a year because someone forgot to whatever and um, having the same kind of nudgy apps that we use to uh, say you haven't you know gone for a walk in two hours feels like there's a lot more capacity there at, at a much more actionable sort of granular level too to have the system designed better to uh, not just toward uh, preparedness Alice on that preparedness side, Uh, When you look around what's been unfolding, it must be, I don't know what the feelings must be like. Knowing what you know, you wrote a book recently about some of this too. And a colleague of ours here at the Earth Institute has, Jeff Schlegelmelsch has a book coming out on readiness. Um, So what, obviously you can't wind the clock back and say, let's do it this way. (laughs) but right where you are now, uh, what is the top of the list of the things you think about when you say, wow, here's what we can definitely do way better given what's unfolded so
2: far.
3: If you look back in history, um, it's a failure of imagination. It's, uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, that we just can't, uh, really get our heads around, uh, these events. So, um, There'll be a commission, there'll be some investigation after this pandemic, and I'm very confident that one of the conclusions will be that we fail to imagine how bad this could be. Just as that was the conclusion, that was the biggest failure after 9-11. Uh, that's sure. what the commission said. It's what they said after Pearl Harbor. It's essentially what was uh, said after Katrina. So. We know that we have these failures of imagination. They're just part of how we get through life is that we don't imagine how bad this could possibly be. Uh, So then we get back, we just need to systematize it. I think your recommendation about being informed by AI Uh, and I think AI, uh, the internet of uh, things, the sensors can inform us about vulnerabilities in a way that we've never had before. You've seen that with the temperatures. They can tell you where it's spiking now, uh, the thermometers and it will take a while, but the government, as well as businesses, private sector need to incorporate these signals. Uh, and then uh, really systematize their decision-making so that uh, they can imagine this. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think in many boardrooms across the United States, as they were watching the news from China, companies were thinking about how are we going to deal with our employees uh, working remotely. I don't think uh, they had invested in the technology. Zoom, I understand, has uh, greatly increased in value, uh, but... We need to force ourselves, impose the discipline to force ourselves to imagine the unimaginable uh, so that we're not accused of a failure of imagination after every one of these events.
1: And I I guess that gets back to the page 21 effect, too. Um, Then it comes back to how do you then have the imagination in the room, create the scenarios and create actionable pathways out of them? Uh, You know, I've been uh, since 2008, I've been posting this periodic... um, Mantra on when I was writing the blog, that came from a reader actually in 2008. It was, uh, "Are we stuck with blah 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 bang?" <laughs> You've probably heard <laughs> me say this more than a few times. So I guess along with the imagination comes the imagination to action part, you know. And one tool that I, under you know that I know a lot of people have meant the loss of was the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment. Uh, you know, maybe we need a Congressional Office of Future Assessment. Or something along those lines on Dot Earth. Many also a decade ago, um, a um, a lawyer in Vermont, a Vermont law school, I think, Rappensperger, She proposed the future needs a legal guardian for just another example of enforcing us to really think about the future, which is what everything we've just been talking about is about. Right? It's about future possibilities, um, but nudging us to actually raise the um, profile of that in our actual decisions, in our budgets, in our, in maybe breaking some old narratives and path dependencies um, in how you invest. Just as you were saying, uh, investing in strategic uh, planning, uh, you know, making that a core part of uh, the Defense Department's thinking. Um, Internationally here, also two weeks ago, Lori Garrett, who's written on pandemic risk, since AIDS, right. she did a piece in The Lancet on the gross underinvestment and communication capacity, meaning the World right. Health Organization has like two people who monitor social media right. around. And when we know the infodemic around the pandemic is hugely consequential. Right. So that, right. I guess that that, means that leads to a huge list of to-do things. But they all have the same property, which is getting the future into the room in a more meaningful way.
2: Right, and you know, it comes back to this—you uh, know, this this issue of flying blind into the future. Right? We know it's hard. We know that there, there are going to be mistakes. You can't predict the future, but what you can do is reduce uncertainty. We can do that. We can do it with technology. We can do it with just good old analysis and and, and brain power. Bring in experts. Think about how trends converge, uh, how uh, the international system is changing right before our eyes, how the United States is a variable in many of these uh, trends. And um, we need to address this systematically. Uh, I think having Congress do it makes a lot of sense. By the way, this, this, uh, this worldwide threat assessment that you know we kicked off this episode with, um, is in response to Congress asking for a yearly update of the threats facing the United States. So it's kind of built in to the system that we're only going to look at tactical, short-term concerns. Where is the you know where is the uh, hearing on long-term strategic threats? Uh, you know, that, that, so I used to write a lot of the language in that worldwide threat assessment. And it was a self-limiting factor, like, oh, which element of climate change, which element of pandemic risk is going to arise in a 12-month window? It's, you know, it's an artificial exercise yeah. and we squeeze it in. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a longer term strategic risk that, um, that again, just whole parts of our government are not asking those questions or prepared to answer them.
1: It's pretty clear that the current administration is only focused on uh, tactical, transactional, and and political, mostly strategic, questions. Alice.
3: One way possibly to force a greater focus on these future risks is establishing some kind of accountability system for our politicians. Uh, There's this expression, NIMT, not in my term. Uh, And we certainly see that uh, the immediate gets the focus of politicians, uh, the potholes, getting uh, the school's money, uh, uh, fighting crime. Uh, But if we had some measure for politicians and their success, including asking them during debates and otherwise, what would be your plans to prepare the United States for these strategic long-term risks, uh, I think it would be quite informative. You know, when we talk about climate change, it's mostly about cutting emissions, which is very, very important. But we already have impacts mm-hmm. that we know will be coming in the next decades that will worse be worsen and will really be very difficult for communities to deal with. And there isn't a lot of discussion about what we're going to do to that, how we'll fund yeah. for that and how we'll keep communities healthy and help them move away from risk. We need to start insisting that our politicians have plans for this. Uh, and maybe we can use the pandemic as an example of why we need to really dig deep into what their thoughts are on preparedness.
1: I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, I I think you and I are on the same train there, for sure. There's so much lack of focus on what you really need to invest in to boost resilience at the community level. And um, at Columbia, we did a meeting right after I started uh, on managed retreat. There's another one planned next next year. And to me, part of the big question is, what do we name this other than managed retreat? (laughs) Because even those words are very
2: and, and thinking about yeah.
1: yeah, so adaptive communities, adaptive coasts, um, there's ways so, to, anyway, Rod?
2: So one of the things I wanted to hop on, uh, a, a question and a, a, a thread that you posed earlier, and that has to do with information. And I think anytime we start thinking about strategic planning, we have to think about information, really misinformation and disinformation uh, we need to think about it as in you know using the concepts and language of risk assessment and threat assessment. Um, we've always had propaganda and misinformation, but it hasn't really impacted uh, you know our societies and our decision makers the way it is now. I mean the my friends still in the intelligence community tell me, that they spend so much time chasing down conspiracy theories and misinformation yeah. that it gets in the way of their actual day to day job. I mean, it, I think it's a it's a critical piece uh, that you keep bringing up, you know, information quality. And uh, I, I think it's I think it's something that we need to study analytically.
1: Yeah, and no, that's why I created this initiative at Columbia. I'm really glad Alex Halliday, the director, liked the idea. To me, the simplest way to think of what we're facing is that Earth has a new system. You know, there's Earth Earth systems. We always talk about Earth system science. Right. Um, the information system as it exists now is fundamentally different than what we had 20 years ago. Uh, and technology for communication has always changed the world. Uh, the passenger pigeon partially went extinct because of the telegraph, where uh, uh, the la- they used to telegram, send telegrams saying the pigeons have landed in the Midwest, and people would get on trains from the East Coast and come to shoot them. It, so, but the, that was in the 1800s. That, that was the same technology that also facilitated weather forecasting. You know, real-time data transmission from different places to London could you could start to forecast the weather. And I think still now we don't really, I don't think the world has fully grasped how profound a change in the earth system we now are experiencing and you know it's a human system but it changes everything it changes the capacity to know without asking china how much coal they're using in their coal-fired power plants now satellite imagery shows that and it used to be all cia and now it's everybody (laughs) um through my friends at planet.com and everywhere else right Uh, uh, alice and, and rod do you think what you know? What's your sense of how important that would be in considering how to get these risks a little less wrong going forward? Information. Yeah, like being being clear about how, that we don't understand it. You know, this is like I don't think anyone predicted. There were probably, actually there was a lot of worry about Trump and Twitter right at the beginning. Jay Rosen at NYU. Um, right. But I, I still the media still hasn't figured out how to deal with that. It was, it was yeah, like, that's right. talk about a shock to the system that no one could figure out. And so, I don't know, is this adequately being dug in on?
2: No, it is not at all. Uh, I mean, we're just basic, we, we're we at the very initial stages of, of really understanding this. I think we really need to bring different elements of the scientific community and the psychologists, uh, the neurobiologists, as well as, you know, good old fashioned communications experts to really understand Uh, the changes that are happening uh, in the information sphere. I agree with you that this can be thought of as an emerging system or an expanding system of the earth earth system. But it has just in the policy space, it has uh, blocked misinformation and really disinformation turning into misinformation, has blocked meaningful progress on a number of policy concerns Um, especially the climate change issue. Um, It is the primary reason why we are 25 years behind where we should be.
1: Yeah, information misuse and
2: or... Right? Yeah. And it's all an information exercise. Yeah.
3: Well, I would add that I think Over time, as I've uh, worked on these catastrophic risks, uh, I have concluded um, that the human brain is very challenged uh, in properly assessing these risks. Uh, It's a lot to do with the behavioral scientist Daniel Kahneman's work: uh, our biases get in the way. Availability bias: if we haven't experienced mm-hmm. it, like a pandemic, we tend to underestimate it. Optimism bias: it won't happen to us. will America mm-hmm. will somehow be spared from uh, COVID-19. Uh, we need to better understand how we can work around those because we think we're rational but if you look back our responses uh, often are over responses because we have the availability bias so we're just after 9 11 it was all anti-terrorism which meant that other issues didn't get uh some of the attention that we now realize they needed to get Uh, and probably the same will happen here so we need to Uh, bring in those experts to help us improve our decision-making so that it is really more comprehensive and reflects the true nature of the risk rather than how our brains tell us those risks uh, seem to appear.
1: So there's a comment that came in that that's going to be interesting for you to look at and think about. This uh, Yanni, he's uh, kind of a curmudgeon. Uh, he says, Trump's shock to the system is constructive and dialectical. It's better than idolized fantastic, fascistic fake news media outlets and their entrenched elite audience. Now, that's kind of a cartoonish and provocative way to frame something that I do think is worth talking about, which is um, can we take away from the experience that's been unfolding here? Lessons going forward is—is is this shock to the system? It's not just the virus, you know. It's as I said, the infodemic around the pandemic. Um, what this has revealed about the press's relationship to the presidency, etc. What is there, is there? Is there an opportunity here?
3: Well, I think this. Uh Event and the way it's unfolded has uh, revealed a number of things. Uh, leadership matters um, and uh, the ability to communicate accurately matters. Uh, and um, when we have uh, no strategy in place or, or not an exercise strategy, it makes us vulnerable. So I, I would disagree with this is a fake news problem um, I think it's shown that the federal government in particular should be uh, in a position to assist the states and local governments to deal with things on the ground, and this has shown that without the proper uh, emphasis on leadership and preparedness, it has not been able to do that in the way that the nation needed it to. Did yeah, have- and
2: I would... I would. Uh- I would be uh, rather interested in hearing the you know longer argument of how the uh, shock to the system is constructive, especially now. Uh, that does yeah. not seem to be um, logical. Um, I I do think some shifts are good for the system, um, undermining uh, credibility of of fact pursuing organizations and posing alternative uh, narratives that aren't based in evidence, but are based in uh, anecdote or even wishful thinking, I think is only corrosive to uh, to decision-making at all levels. Uh, and, and I would say, and this is me as a scientist speaking, I think it's immoral uh, to to be uh, engaged in telling lies in a moment of crisis. And
1: uh, I guess the the part of that that resonated to a certain extent for me is the role of the press for the time being, and actually for the last three years and even exacerbated in recent days with Trump's press conferences, which are designed to occupy space, um, give him a platform the press plays along with this over and over again. Jay Rosen at NYU is a longtime media analyst and uh, critic, and he said the press needs to go into emergency mode. That right now it's clear that um, simply turning on the live stream from the White House, as as has been happening, has been doing exactly what Rod just mentioned, is is spreading uh, these, these false uh, assertions. And then the, the media does this kind of silly Ridiculous nonstop fact checking, which psychologists say actually is doesn't actually change people's attitudes. In many cases, that if you're a Trumpian, it just makes you feel oh more loyal to the guy because he's being assailed. Um, and, and there are different strategies. In other words, the media can choose or not choose to broadcast live the um, the, uh, the the pandemic briefings, at least, and focus on the actual sources of information. You know, CDC, NIH, and like it's it feels oh. like there's a trap here that no one has figured out how to get out of yet.
2: Yeah. Well, I, what I would say is, you know, press and communications are outside of my expertise. Um, I do think it's incorrect to call the media, you know, to use that as a monolithic term, because there are many different types of uh, outlets there uh, in terms of uh, whether they're evidence-based or not. Um, Yeah. And, uh, but I, I do think, you know, again, uh, just going back to being a scientist and, and, uh, and Alice's, you know, remarks earlier about, you know, uh, the way our own neurology and our own uh, cognitive uh, system doesn't always lead us down the right path. Well, this is why we invented science hundreds right. of years ago, right? right to to expand past the limitations of 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 our, our of ourselves and so like microscope and telescope uh, right microscope and- telescope and really yeah. the the that those are the instruments of science but also the method of science right is to you know it's it's there so that we can so that we could move past uh you know what Carl Sagan called was the demon haunted world and right. Um, there is, there, there are still truths and non-truths and engaging in non-truths, um, you know, seems to not serve the public interest.
1: Yeah, so we're circling back one more time to the question, the page 121 question. So if you, could you imagine, do this scenario exercise of imagining what a process would look like having been in that process mm-hmm, literally sure. where a virus emerging in Wuhan right gets detected and how that plays out
2: well i mean the the first thing that you would do i mean what you hope to have is a team inside the government whose only task is to look for that right because we know it's coming this won't yeah. be the last pandemic it, it you know there are really good articles and a lot of good scientists who are arguing that climate change will be bringing more infectious, emerging infectious diseases, because those pathogens are more able to evolutionarily adapt to new systems, leaving, and hop hosts, leaving, uh, you know, leaving humans as, and other organisms as, as victims. But here's the deal, you use science, let science lead. And as soon as we learned the code, the, the genetic code of parts of that of the coronavirus, which we knew in early January, that's when that pandemic response team, and Alice knew them, uh, I, you know, I knew them quite well, uh, what they would do uh, is contact uh, the agency, the elements inside the government, international elements who test. Testing is a fundamental pillar of uh, tackling a pandemic, uh, you know, like this one or or the next one. And it's incomprehensible to me how far back we were in getting tests. It, it's, it's a national disgrace. Right. And so, but that's that's the that's the that's the first thing you do, because if you don't understand the problem, you can't work to combat the problem.
1: So, so a more meaningful uh, and listened-to structure within government to do to be the agile observer, tracker, reporter on s- emergent situations that have the characteristic of being big disruptors it seems like that's where you're, there has to be a thing. And I guess, well, that was what, at least the news from ABC this week was that 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 military medical intelligence information right. didn't get there.
2: National Center for Medical Intelligence. I, I knew these uh, folks very well. Uh, they're part of the Defense Intelligence Agency. I think they're are 85 to 100% Either physicians or, uh, you know, infectious disease experts or environmental health experts. I think quite highly of them. Um, I have a little bit of skepticism that they uh, broke this story in November. That sounds a little bit plain loose. I, I'd like I, I'd like to know more about that. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah. but, I, but I I know just because I'm very familiar. With the um, with the organizations, uh, and you know my own experience watching the Ebola uh, um, outbreak occur, and you know the intelligence community and other parts of the national security community being on it well before it was uh, public, I have no doubt that elements in the intelligence community were on this, uh, you know, in late December, early January.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm just posting. ABC did get later. They got some uh, pushback from uh, uh, Colonel uh, Shane Day on mm-hmm. that, saying that there was no such NCMI product. Uh, now, obviously, that you can write a, a denial like that. That could be a different, right? could be you know true and false or whatever. I, I I kind of sense to you though this gets back to the page one twenty one effect. Uh, even if that that intelligence group had stated in some technical way that there was this spot right. emerging, I still don't sense that the system is set up well for that information to become actionable.
2: Well, well you know, it's, we're getting, you know, right now, just looking at, you know, the, the text that you're putting up is when something that is a uh, strategic foresight exercise starts to become tactical. And then that's where the government does have some, uh, quite a bit of capability to play as long as it's done some planning ahead of time, you do the worst place you want to be in a rapidly evolving complex emergency is you. You don't want to be blind. You want to have thought through this ahead of time. And the thing is, you know, I sat through dozens of pandemic preparedness exercises over a decade. Uh, I'm sure Alice uh, did the same. It's a you know just thinking about which elements. Uh, Get moved into action. There's so many moving parts. Uh, I find it shocking that uh, with all of that capacity, there are still some key elements just completely um, inoperable. It seems.
1: Yeah. Well, Alice, with you know, on that question, when you had to drop off, we were talking about what would the system look like that gets this right or less, you know, less wrong. We circle back to that question of where do we go from here. Um, And maybe using this as a case study, obviously, you haven't been in the loop on this particular internal threat assessment, but suppose that this particular NCMI had come out with some strong sign that there was a disruptive disease outbreak in that part of China. How do we think about creating the pipeline? Pipeline might even not be the right Architecture to get that where it needs to go in ways that kind of get the right response. And maybe it's, it is what Rod said. Maybe it's not the it's not the response. It's the preparation for the response. It's like as he said, the so you know what to do when that signal comes through. I, what, is there something like that you could propose an architecture for next week that could take us in a better direction?
3: Well, I think it uh, requires leadership. And it requires uh, some entity or some body uh, being entrusted with uh, the responsibility to watch for these threats and then inform early. You know, the government did create, uh, and I didn't research uh, what kind of funding it has had since I left government, the National Biological Integration Center that's uh, run by. Um, uh, DHS, and and its purpose was to take news reports and other reports of emerging infectious disease uh, outbreaks, uh, naturally occurring outbreaks of anthrax, uh, you name it, uh, and then uh, prepare classified and unclassified uh, information for agencies, both state and local, to consume and do their proper planning. If uh, such an entity were empowered and could uh, serve as the early warning and then properly go up to the chain so that uh, someone actually does act, uh, I think we can do it. This isn't uh, rocket science. It doesn't, it requires coordination. It requires uh, empowerment of those on the ground to inform leaders to act. And what we had here is uh, news emerging and then we're not getting the diagnostics ready. We're not getting the testing done. We're not looking, opening up the national stockpiles, at least that's not being made aware of where the United States to double check where we are. We're not negotiating through the federal government to help the state and locals uh, with the shortage of supplies. We're leaving them on their own. There were many choices that could have been made differently uh if we had simply treated it with the seriousness that it deserves so um i don't think we need new systems we need better coordination and uh assertion of leadership and then empowerment of people to act
1: reasonable uh, assessment Um, i think we're close to um being able to wrap up here i wanted you both to kind of go at this one last time and in the sense of um if there's a convening that could happen or, and obviously one thing I always try to stress in these sustain what conversations is, right now we're still in the now phase. There's so much about the now that can on a daily basis mitigate or exacerbate outcomes in every village town um, around the world. And it's wonderful, it's important to um, honor the uh, folks who are on the front lines right now doing in that decision space, whether it's individual risk of someone's restocking grocery store shelves, or these uh, people in Bhopal, India, who uh, created a chain to get food. There's a guy there, he's an accountant, who wakes up at 7 in the morning, starts driving food, and doesn't stop till 1.30 in the morning, uh, uh, you know, answering these WhatsApp calls. They're all heroes of uh, the moment. At the same time, as Congress releases money, as people who are in positions of responsibility Take this moment to look ahead. It's that's why it's legitimate and important to have this discussion as well. To make sure that we're not just going to build back to 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 make sure we're we're testing ways to avoid path dependency. And to mm. and that's happening, it's happening in academia. You know, anyone who thinks that Zoom is a patchwork thing, we're doing temporarily, and then we're all going to go back to a system where students are paying. Going into deep debt to go to a college to learn. Anyone who thinks right. that that we're going back to that system is fantasizing. Some That's of it right. will be there. So, right. Anyway, so Sorry. where do we? So on that, where do we go from here? Part, um, if you could just each articulate a little bit of a vision statement, that would be great.
2: Well, I, I will go back to uh, a call for strategic planning, and and we are blessed with. Uh, the tools to do more strategic foresight than ever. We we understand the at least the known risks better than we ever have. We know, uh, for example, uh, a, a range of trajectories with respect to warming of the planet. We know trajectories of. Um, you know how our ecological systems are are heading. We don't understand a lot of the convergences. We we, but we really need to uh, build on this uh, this strategic foresight capabilities uh, in a way that that brings us back brings us back from dealing with crises, constant crises. Again, I. I Go back to that statement. If all you do is crisis management, that's all you will ever do. And plan out the future, shape the future, uh, expect surprise, and uh, and build this in many levels, not just the federal government, states, cities. Uh, just it 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 is a it is a recipe for disaster because the the profile of of risks and threats and surprises that are coming uh, you know, over the next 10, 20, 30 years yeah. is unprecedented.
1: Alice, what's your li- way to wrap things up? Well, I
3: agree uh, wholeheartedly uh, with Rod, uh, but I think there's another aspect that I would like to add. Uh, we need the strategic planning and foresight. I'm reminded of a story that uh, Dad Allen told about when he was, uh, Michael Brown was removed uh, during for, from FEMA for the response to Katrina. He was put in charge. He was the commandant of the Coast Guard. Uh, and he described his first meeting with the first responders and they said, uh, someone asked, well, what should we be doing? Uh, And Thad Allen didn't say, well, you should follow these regulations. You should uh, make sure you have this in your boat or whatever you're doing. He said, treat everyone as if they're your family. Hmm. And I think we need to treat these risks as if it could affect ourselves or our families. We somehow think it's not us. And this pandemic, if it's proven anything, it affects everyone. No matter if you're uh, better off and more privileged and still being paid, uh, you're still at home. uh, Or uh, for those most vulnerable who are suffering far more. uh, But it's affecting everyone. And we have to start thinking that way instead of thinking this is some distant uh, problem that optimistically it won't be our problem. Uh, And that requires us to have the courage to actually look at these issues and come up with some ideas and approaches for having better outcomes.
1: I think it's this is really valuable. Um, Coda here. David Van Bema, who's a journalist I went to journalism school with mm-hmm. at Columbia in 1981, 82, has been uh, watching today and I've offered some good comments. He says, uh, as Karen Russell wrote in the New Yorker, flatten the curve has been incredibly helpful and empowering. I'd be fascinated to see graphs that might be important for four or five different potential crises, not, not for immediate action, for a sense of where we are. There was a great cartoon in the New Yorker, uh, gosh, if you give me a second here, I could show everyone because I showed it yesterday, that got the curve of the, the flat curve for um, this out- outbreak in the context of the climate curve, right? which exactly. is this grand larger uh, right. cresting wave and I guess that's that's I, I do think there's a role here. This gets to the imagination part uh, that you both have mentioned for communication innovation as well. There have been some great innovative approaches here uh, that some some many of which actually came from the bottom up. I maybe I'll I will, um, offer one final thought. I should really show you this though. But I kind of yeah. It. So um, let
2: me jump on David's remark because it's yeah. it's quite important. Um, The fact that social distancing has thus far uh, worked fantastically, although this is a developing crisis, is exactly what uh, we're talking about. Not watch the future evolve, but shape it. Shape it with today's action. And so, but, but you have to understand enough of, right? Flattening the curve would not have been possible if we hadn't done a lot of, uh, you know, epidemiology uh, well in advance. We we know right. through science and policy what works, and just and shaping the future through current actions, and not allowing these efforts to be recategorized as misinformation. As oh, the experts were wrong about the projections. Right there's right. a very da- a big danger of it being recharacterized as a failure of of uh, you know the the scientific and medical experts. Um, what we're seeing is that we had a a big role in how this developed. Again, I'm down uh, in Western North Carolina, where you know we're behind the rest of the curve right now. It still hasn't really crested um you know in this part of the country so right. I'm very hesitant to be talking about uh this in any past uh tense so
1: I, I zoomed in on this cartoon purposely I want you to see this was actually on Instagram it wasn't in the New Yorker I'll be happy when this is over they're looking at the familiar curve of the of the uh the virus but here's the big curve and yeah. to me, that big curve is not just climate change. It's the Anthropocene. It's uh, right. the extinction crisis. It's that's our right. impacts on the oceans. And uh, the perceptual challenge in getting, as you both said, getting the future in the room in a way that's actionable. And also uncertainty. You know, We don't know how fast sea level is going to rise. We still don't know. Science has determined. One of the things we know most powerfully about climate change is that we don't know how fast sea levels are going to rise between now and 2100. And that's so we've bounded it. We've yeah, bounded yeah, it. yeah. But we bounded it at, at between manageable and catastrophe. And, <laughs> that's right. and so, so that's why decision-making under deep uncertainty, you know, the, uh, the deepuncertainty.org, the folks like Rob Lempert who were on the show recently, um, part of what science reveals is is sometimes that we don't know and then that throws the responsibility back on us on how to deal with uh, actions where we don't know the full scope of the outcomes as well so science it can reduce the uncertainty but often more science has created more complexity and that's another part of the challenge going forward too it's like you you can't tell me neither of you can tell me that ar6 or 7 or 8 the ipcc reports coming is going to change the curve of understanding of sea level rise in time to be meaningful for policy. Unless I'm, i I would put money on that, that there won't be some magical study that says, oh now we know it's going to be two and a half feet by 2100.
2: But the but but when you're doing risk assessment, uh, you should you should over prepare than than under prepare. Right? I mean uh, although but
1: here's you know here's the and this is where it gets so complex i want to do a separate show on this how many hospital beds is enough like in japan it's 12.8 hospital beds per 1000 people in the united states it's 2.8 and we know that 2.8 doesn't capture surges right right we, and there's separate statistics for icu beds and they're even it's terrible so there are these value judgments you know how many people in japan are older you know what what is the characteristics of countries that lead to different decision making Korea, I haven't seen, maybe you guys know, I haven't seen yet um, an assessment of how South Korea's really good response was a function of the fact that they're basically on a war footing all the time. South Korea has a really good medical preparedness because, you know, they're sitting a dozen miles from just from doom and how much of that is, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, wow, South Korea got it right and we got it wrong, but how much of that's sort of cultural, political... Priorities, priorities that are really um, different. Seems that these lead to still some interesting questions.
3: Well, mm-hmm. one thing I would add is uh, because there is so much uncertainty, that means that we need to plan for the uncertainty uh, in the choices we make. So we need to have in the back of our minds, if we needed to surge uh, with this building structure, whatever, exactly. uh, uh, be able to surge in time. Uh, and that goes for a bridge. You can build the bridge so that it uh, is at a static level or you can build it so it could be easily raised if the sea level uh, rise continues uh, at far less expense. So it's taking into account the uncertainty now, uh, knowing that we won't get it perfect, but we might have a better outcome if we've at least thought about how we could expand or contract as circumstances demand.
2: And I think, I, yep. I would just put back in you know in the sea level uh, rise example, and I make this point, you know when I teach this to my students, um, you know the modeling uh, captures mostly, if not entirely, known processes right, right that right in terms of warming and the interaction with the cryosphere. Uh, we should also note the climate that that sea level rise, looks to be accelerating uh, after a linear um, you know, a trend for most of the last 30, 40 years. Um, but it, but that, those models don't uh, capture a lot of um, possible, maybe probable as we go uh, further in time, physical processes that, uh, that will exacerbate uh, sea level rise. And so um, you know the, the Mike Mann from Penn State often says, you know, uncertainty is not our friend um, yeah. with respect to climate change and you know I, I think I think you know we can't continue doing you know casino type policymaking and decision making, just hoping that we roll the the snake eyes or hoping that we roll the double sixes, right. Uh, right. Which has kind of been our approach. We're hoping that uh, things aren't as bad as the scientists are telling us. Um, that's a terrible way uh, to do policy. And so it's so in terms of sea level rise, um, it's if you had to bet, you would probably bet that it's going to be worse than it's predicted, than better than predicted. So back yeah. to the risk assessment. Yep. Well,
1: I'm hoping that these discussions we're having here can lead mm-hmm. us to uh, a better place. They spill into academia, they spill into uh, policy. Uh, tomorrow on Sunday, we swing into the arts. My um, I'm determined that this 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 program is about all the responses at, at various levels, we need to take or consider to have a smoother ride through both the now of this thing this tragedy and the next. And uh, it's been great having both of you on now twice, thank and you. I hope mm-hmm. we can uh, deepen this further. You know, iterative discussions can lead to outcomes that are better than just one-off uh, talking head moments. And I think that's what I'm trying to build here is uh, is trajectory toward um, not just understanding, but outcome. And I thank you both for being part of this. Thanks uh, for
2: having us. Thank um, you.
1: And we'll do more. So Sunday, uh, Dar Williams, the songwriter, is going to be with us, um, and uh, an artist named Emil Alzamara is going to take us on a studio tour, virtually. Uh, you know, you think about all these realms of the arts that are paralyzed utterly by um, where we're at. Um, people there are being creative and um, and uh, co- collective also in, in ways that are extraordinary and interesting. And then back into the um, into the mall um, next week. I'm going to have on, um, let's see here, uh, Thomas uh, Puyo, who is uh, out in Silicon Valley. He's the one who um, wrote a very influential um, piece on Medium about the um, the transition in in uh, in strategy around COVID-19 from the hammer to the dance. It's a paper about the next stage once you've done the lockdown is more of a, as you were saying, testing. wide testing has to be part of the future. And then, uh, sort of a, an agile dance. It's like stamping out the little fires that are going to pop up as the, the, the windborne firebrands extend. Um, you know, this is going to go into Africa and South America, and then come back. And uh, the dance is the next part of the equation. Um, we've been enduring a pretty powerful hammer now. So, thank you, thank you, Alice Health. Thank you, Scoonover. Stay safe. Um, hope those around you stay safe as well. And to everybody who tuned in today, please share this. Um, It gets archived, and um, it's our experiment at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Uh, This is a global conversation around, for now, focused on COVID-19, but very much focused on the systems and solutions that we need to build to have a smoother ride for humanity going into the, the rest of this wacky century. Whether you call it the Anthropocene or not, it's a time of deep uncertainty, incredible opportunity, and a lot of risk. So go forth and stay safe. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Sustain What?, a production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world.